Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to another episode of What Next? Today we have a very unusual guest who has made a very unusual career transition. This fine gentleman is named Ashish Kotari, and today he's the founder and CEO of a company called Happiness Squad, which hopefully will explain what that is. He is an author of a book called Hardwired for Happiness. But what makes him very unusual for someone who is focusing on happiness and wellness and as an author is he has, prior to this, had an incredibly successful career as a consultant, where he has spent over 17 years at McKinsey, most recently as a partner. Welcome, Ashish. It is my pleasure to be with you, Rashad. Thank you. When I first heard about you and you reached out to me, I said, what is this guy and what's he up to? So give us a little background. Yeah, sure. So for Happiness Squad and the work that you know I'm dedicating the second half of my life is around democratizing happiness, is around really helping individuals and organizations unlock their best selves by integrating the science and art of happiness and flourishing into their lives and into the companies they lead. That's what we are about. And I'll tell you, uh, you know, I came to this over, I came to this decision and kind of the decision to shift away from an incredibly fulfilling and satisfying and rewarding career in consulting. During the pandemic, I realized, Rishad, as I was working on our flourishing offering, our adaptability and resilience offerings at McKinsey, I realized at that time how big this issue of stress, anxiety, and burnout was becoming in the world and was going to become emerging out of the pandemic. You know, we were seeing consistently numbers like 40 to 60% of people being exhausted, stressed, burnt out. Disengagement was continuing to be high, even though it rose in the first year of the pandemic. And I also realized as part of the research that, you know, this wasn't limited to for-profit companies. Uh, It was secular, for-profit, non-for-profit. Everybody was struggling. CEOs were struggling and leaders as much as frontline employees. Um, You know, bankers, consultants, private equity were struggling as much as teachers and doctors. And so it was a secular issue. And my insight was that fundamentally, while there was a lot externally that pundits were talking about um, that was causing this, the real issue was actually a mismatch between our ability as humanity to take complexity and the complexity in the world. So it was actually an inner problem, not an outer problem. And that's why we were struggling. And when I realized how big this issue was and how important this was uh, to really elevate consciousness, to really rewire away from fear, which I talk about in my book, towards happiness and flourishing, we're not going to solve, we're not going to get out of this crisis. We're only going to make every crisis in the world deeper. When I realized that, I was like, this is what I want to spend the rest of my life on. I have a 13-year-old son, so this is a very personal issue for me, that we leave a world behind that actually uh, allows the next generation to thrive rather than just survive. A lot of this is based on 
hard data and not just emotion. There's this 40 to 60% burnout. There is this mismatch between the complexity of the world and our own human ability to do so. Yes. And we are often besotted with a combination of insecurity, lack of relevancy, fear, hard to keep up versus being a little bit more composed and happy. Is that the deal? You're exactly right, right? This was not an emotion. Oh my God, what's happening? It's like really grounded in neuroscience, in psychology, adult development theory, the work. So I'll give you a couple of those key elements for your listeners. You know, there's been a lot of work done at Harvard around adult development theory, right? That stages that basically explores how as adults we continue to develop you know, from what's called the self-sovereign stage, where our ability to actually hold anybody else's perspective is pretty low in our teenage years, to socialized when we make sense based on group norms, groups we belong to, we just take that on as that's right and that's wrong, to self-authored, which is based on our own North Star. Consistently, you know, what we find is about 50 to 70% of people are stuck in the socialized or self-sovereign stage. Only about 15, 20% around self-authored. There's another model around reactive versus creative, okay, which is at the heart of that theory, which is when we are dealing with the complexity from the place of a socialized, when we really need to be at self-authored, what ends up happening is, you know, our evolutionary circuits for fear get triggered, you know, because our brains are have no way of kind of separating psychological threats from physical threats, okay? And so when we find something more complex and we try so hard to kind of control it but fail, we literally get triggered. You know, we have adrenaline and cortisol flowing through our body continuously. Now, our bodies are designed for that, right? So that's not the issue either. The issue is we have so much happening all around us that we are constantly running on on high, cortisol and adrenaline. And it's this lack of coping that is creating the crisis, right? And just think about, Rishad, for you and for the, your listeners, you know, think about a place, think about a moment when you were, you felt afraid, okay? You felt physically afraid. Let's just go there for a minute. And I invite you to think about what was happening to you in that moment, were you contracted or were you open? Most of us contract, right? We kind of literally harden ourselves to take the blow. Were you more able to take somebody else's perspective or less? All the research done by Daniel Goldman and others suggests that when we are in the midst of what he termed amygdala hijack, we are at 20, 30% lower IQ. Why? Because our limbic brain short circuits the you know, the cognitive prefrontal cortex. So we can't even think clearly. We're in a haze. So that's the reason. And from that place, when you make decisions, do you make decisions for self or do you make decisions from a place of connection to other? And that's what we are experiencing at scale as humanity. You know, we're taking decisions out of fear. We're solving for the self versus the other. We're solving for the here and now versus the future. Uh, and unless we fundamentally shift that, unless we fundamentally vertically develop as leaders and as human beings, we will continue operating from fear and hence deepen every crisis that we are living in the midst of. We're not going to find ourselves, you know, Einstein was super smart, but he said it, so not me, which was, 
We cannot solve problems with the same level of consciousness that creates them. We actually have to evolve. And that's what the adult development theory folks like Jennifer Harvey Berger and others at Harvard have been talking about as how do we actually increase our ability to hold complexity? How do we fundamentally rewire away from fear to happiness, which is what my book is all about. Before we go there, let me encapsulate what I believe you've said, which is because we are living in a world where so much is happening, so much is changing, that we find ourselves because of all this mental and other thing in the same space we would if we felt physically threatened. So we basically are fearful as a result. We go into sort of a contract mode. Mm-hmm. This basically reduces our ability to compute and then makes us do three key things, which is we are much more self-driven versus connected to other people. We much more think about today versus tomorrow. Yep right? And we are much less open to learning because it's very hard to learn when you're not open. That's right. So in a world that is increasingly connected, in a world where there is continuous change happening, and in a world where we have to think successfully middle to long term versus just short term, this actually serves as a retardant versus a accelerant to our future. And that's the reason we have to get beyond this. That's exactly right. It serves as a retardant individually and collectively it really pushes us back, you know, it re- because, you know, all of a sudden when we think about organizations and what's happening there, it amplifies the effect, you know, because as individuals, our effect <laughs> might be limited, but given we spend so much of our time in organizations, we are actually amplifying the harm that we are doing versus the healing that we can create. Got it. So me fearful combined with you fearful combined with someone else fearful, it's basically one plus one plus one instead of three, we create four or five. Yep. And then each one of them probably gives rise to further fears. Yeah. And we take actions that make things worse, right? We deepen the crisis. So now let me ask you before we start thinking about solutions and suggestions, one of your perspectives that you shared, your first one, is that this area of stress and all these things that we're going through are not going to end just because COVID has ended and you anticipate it's going to get worse in 2023. Yes. So let me share a little bit about that and the data that that is out there. We have emerged from what I would call nothing close to bloodletting in in the corporate world in the first three months, right? And it's been a little bit of the... Because somebody else can do it, I can do it too. And we've let go of a lot of people in the fear the economy is going to go down. We have a recession coming. We need to kind of really make sure preserve profits, right? Profits in a world, in a public market-driven world, have become the outcome that individual leaders and companies are solving for first and foremost. Profits are an outcome of a healthy, flourishing organization of a group of people united together to make a difference in the world. So that's one reason. I think we are, the the economic conditions out there, um, the political conditions that we are in the midst of, the global, you know, tensions between US and China, Russia, the war with Ukraine, there's all of these situations that kind of continuing to emerge 
And what I see is because we are so focused right now on profit, profit, profits, and preserving the profits, where companies are going to continue to take actions that fundamentally cut at the heart of employee trust and psychological safety in the workplaces. And so it doesn't matter how many well-being programs we roll out, Rashad, right? It doesn't matter how much, you know, we offer, you know, we say the words. Unless we fundamentally address this, it's going to be an issue. So I think that's one big reason why this is going to continue. I think the second big issue is actually tied to the second point I had, you know, um, in my email when I was exchanging conversations with you and Chris, which is, look, I think when we think about well-being efforts, diversity, equity, inclusion efforts, you know, by many standards, when you look at the data, between 2009 to 2020, investments in well-being have gone up by three times within companies, Okay. Stress, anxiety, and burnout have actually gone up, not gone down. Why is the case? You know, investments in DEI, whether it's around supporting women, minority groups, have gone up again by almost one and a half to two X by many measures. Are we seeing one and a half to two X impact on performance? I'm not even thinking about performance in revenues and profits. I'm just saying performance in terms of the metrics they're supposed to improve, women in the workplace. The reason we're not is we are continuing to see a world where we are treating well-being, we're treating diversity, equity, inclusion as plus ones. We're treating them as things that we have to do in addition to getting the work done. We're not measuring them. We don't incentivize them. It's one additional thing. And I don't see that changing anytime in the in the near future, which is what I'm on a mission of. Bring well-being, diversity, equity, inclusion, and other flourishing efforts back into the main line. Think about safety and quality, right? We really made improvements when we integrated them into our products and how we made them, not by treating them at the end of the line. Exactly. Integrated versus outside. And so You know, your basic belief, I think, on these two points are, number one, because of not only the change at work, but now the profit maximization, the job loss, et cetera, like major, very well-established companies from Amazon, Disney, among others, Mm -hmm. you know, laying off many people. Obviously, Meta had another layoff. So regardless of basically what someone says, if you fear the loss of your job, it doesn't matter if people are singing Kumbaya, right? That's number one. That's exactly right. Like you can give people meditation apps all day long. You can give them here's who to call. But but meditation apps aren't going to help me pay the bill. Exactly. Uh, you're absolutely right. And then the other one really is the entire basic belief that what is critical to human beings, which is this area of both diversity, inclusion, fair play, well-being, is considered as not part of the architecture, but sort of paint that's applied later. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's let's fix it. I talk to so many people who are like the chief well-being officer at one of the largest companies, okay? Like it's her and a team of three trying to move 20,000 people. (laughs) It's like, how is that going to make a difference, right? How is that going to make a difference? I think I see that, um, you know, both of those are going to be fundamental issues. And listen, and truly... The outside environment isn't getting better because we are stuck in this kind of negative, you know, downward spiral. Think about just the ecological disasters we are facing, right? You know, we have a, it's so funny, we were, I was joking with a client of mine. They were talking about all the ecological disasters. If you listen to them, every week, there is a storm of the year. 
storm of the century. I'm like, how can you have a storm of the century every week? Like these are just getting worse, worse and worse. You know, so there is a lot in the external environment, ecologically, economically, humanitarian, inflation, economy. So there are a lot of these pressures coming too, right? So when you combine a job loss concern at work, I don't feel safe at work. I don't feel safe outside. And on top of that, I'm just tired and I don't even believe the initiatives that we're taking are going to make a difference. You get into, you lose hope, right? Yes. You, you lose hope. And that's why this crisis, I feel, is going to continue getting worse um, before it gets actually better. Well, you know, your first point was reasons it would get worse. The second was the fact that a lot of these additional things like well-being and others should be part of the architecture. Yeah. In the line versus end of the line. And then your third point is the one very much in the news, which is AI and how mm-hmm. it will change work and will it take away my job? Can you speak a bit about that? You know, we're in the same place right now to some extent, right? This is on one hand, this is the conversation similar to, you know, when um, word processors came out, right? Or the, you know, or other kind of major advancements. We were like, oh my God, everybody's going to lose their job. So I think there is a job loss thing. It's uh, To me, that is not the bigger issue. I think the bigger underlying issue is when we deploy AI technologies like ChatGPT, you know, or the ability to create deep fake videos, videos of your own selves. When we think about these technologies, when we, when, when we wield them from a place of fear and not necessarily from wholeness, it can create a lot of problems in the world, right? So I think to me, I worry about that. In the end, you know, we take in information and there is all of a first time an ability to create so much information so quickly using, you know, technologies like ChatGPT and others that are not even true, that are not even correct, right? there, And we can have so much misinformation. So I worry about that a lot. You know, I think the answer is we can, if we invest in learning and development, learn how to actually use AI technologies to do things better, to do things faster. But we need to learn to invest. We need to invest in science, technology, STEM learning. We need to retrain people at scale as companies, as governments, as local organizations. And I don't see that investment happening. And when I was at McKinsey, you know, there's a very recent report that clearly showed companies that invest in talent outperform others, but very few do. So those three really are this entire thing that we're not investing enough in STEM and other places because the future is really going to be us working with the machine versus us against the machine, but we have to work with the machine. Second is obviously applying AI in places that are productive versus scary. Yeah. And the third, you know, to a great extent, is the disinformation and other problems where who do you trust, which further breaks down the trust stuff which we have already begun to see with these deep fake videos of whether it's Tom Cruise or a Drake video, et cetera. Yes. Uh, so at some particular stage, as I basically say, and you may be old enough to remember this ad campaign for what used to be called cassette tape, mm-hmm. Memorex, and it was, is it live or is it Memorex? Yes. So in the future, it's going to be, is it live or is it a virtual Ashish? Or is it Ashish on AI or is it live? That is what I'm seeing right now emerging at such a rapid scale. So given all these things, can you tell us a few things about what you are advising both your clients, what some of the key themes of your book are, on how 
all of us can become more open, keep learning, dial down the fear and be more happy. Yeah. So look, I think there is a two-part answer. And so let's sure. let's talk about both of those. I think the first one is what can we do as individuals, right? Uh, because I truly believe, you know, as individuals, there's a lot that we can do. We don't have to rely on companies. We often get into this if you're working, well, it's their problem. It, you know, I'm not being supported. There's a lot that we can do. So in my book, you know, Hardwired for Happiness, I highlight nine practices. Um, then these practices, dear friends, are in every wisdom tradition. They're secular by nature. Mm-hmm. But there is, for every one of them, I cover them in my book, real evidence from psychology and neurosciences that they actually work because they fundamentally change our neural pathways in our brain. They truly help us rewire away from fear. At the heart of these nine practices is the practice of self-awareness right? Knowing ourselves. Because it is true. We see the world as we are, in the words of Anaisnen, and not as the world is. And so what we give attention to and lenses through which we see is, and hence actions we take, directly drive the results we get. So the practice of self-awareness is at the heart of my model, which is the sunflower model. You can find out a lot more about it on happinessquad.com. Um, or on my book. In addition to that are eight other practices that once we actually really ground ourselves in self-awareness, we can start to activate, which are the practices of purpose. What are we here for? What excites me? How can I find meaning in my life? Um, That's the second practice. At any point in time, we are swimming in abundance, But our mind, which is continuously looking for things that are not good, focuses on things that we don't have, right? So training our mind to count our blessings is one of the practices like gratitude. Um, And there are about, you know, six, seven additional ones. Perfect. All of which are built around, you know, me being more grateful, being more aware. Being more aware, being more grateful, connected, community is a big part. Yeah. You know, we just, the the research study that just got published, I mean, I was aware of it for five years, but it just came out. So a lot of press is the work done in Harvard, right? The longest study on human flourishing that showed that 60% of the driver is human connection and quality of connection. Right. So that's a practice I talk about, which is how can we connect deeply and how can we have a high quality network? Um, So there's a set of these practices. And, you know, my insight, Rishad, wasn't that, you know, one was this model, which truly puts awareness at the heart of it, because I think without that, you can't activate any of the others. There are 10,000 books on happiness and flourishing. So why write one more? And the reason to write the book and the reason to actually create, we have just created a, a masterclass. It's a digital foundations class where I combined the science of tiny habits and habit formation to these practices. Because to me, the chasm I wanted to solve for individuals, Rishad, was not the knowing. Everybody knows mindfulness is good. I wanted to solve the chasm between knowing and doing. Right, right. And then the second chasm between doing and being. Um, And so I said, hey, look, a lot of what we do is out of habits. So why can't we actually support people in forming healthier habits, habits that allow us to shift away from fear? That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it was uh, T.S. Eliot, the poet, who basically said between the idea and the reality falls the shadow. Yep. That's your chasm. And, you know, tiny habits, most of our listeners would know, is this entire idea that if you do small little things, you can make you know habits happen, and so you're going to be applying those to 
the practice of wellfulness and happiness. That's exactly right. So I created 26 micro practices, Rishad. And again, the every one of them is again grounded in science. And every practice is five minutes or less, right? I wanted to make it five minutes or less. So I'll give you a beautiful example. Sure. Uh, this got inspired by, um, you know, a lot of my clients who are CEOs. And I love this guy's quote. And he said, Ashish, I know mindfulness is good for me, but my mind is too full of problems to be able to be mindful. When I sit down, I have all kinds of thoughts that come into my head. So I can't be mindful. And by the way, I don't have time. So I said to him, his name is Tom. I said, Tom, here's a mindfulness practice. Here's a micro practice. I asked him, I said, do you brush every morning? And he said, what kind of question is that? Of course, I brush every morning. I brush morning and night. I said, wonderful. Tomorrow, when you brush, why don't you just brush intentionally? Which means, you know, notice your brush, notice which hand you pick up your brush from, take your toothpaste, notice how you put the toothpaste. How much do you put it on? Is it the full brush or half a brush? Truly be with it, right? Rather than be on your phone, truly experience brushing mindfully. What is mindfulness? Mindful is nothing but the awareness that arises when we pay attention on purpose, right? And in the present moment without judgment. So we can integrate mindfulness into everything that we do. We don't have to go sit on a couch. Yes, that would be very nice if we additionally everybody did that. But we can integrate mindfulness every day. I gave him another example, which he's since integrated into his life. You know, mindful meetings, Richard, we spend eight, 10 hours on average in meetings. And I asked him, I said, tell me a little bit about how your meetings go. And in particular, pay attention to the first five, 10 minutes of the meeting. How present is everybody? How productive are the conversations? He said, yeah, you know, we really get into our groove in the second half of the meeting because I'm still processing information from my prior meeting. And so I said to him, well, wonderful. What if you did the following? Tomorrow in your meeting, when you get with the group, just ask people, Hey, dear friends, let's take six breaths together to truly be present and get our minds connected to where our bodies already are. Can we all just sense together before we start? And notice what shifts. Those are mindful meetings. So these are examples, Richard, of practices that I've created. You know, gratitude was another one of those. And I said, do you send out weekly status reports? And he said, yes. I said, what if you included a box at the end every week where you collectively as a team thought about three people who've made a big difference in your life that week? Recognize them and call them. That's a great thought. That's a great thought. Yeah. Right. So that's the kind of things that I've created, which are really simple hacks that we can just integrate into our days that take five minutes or less. But if we start to do that, it'll start to shift both how we experience the world but also how our colleagues and the rest of the company that we're leading are. Absolutely. So one of the two parts you mentioned was being aware of yourself, improving and being happy yourself. What was the second part? So awareness is at the heart of it. And I think from that, you know, then activating, which will be an area that gives you, that is the big area of growth for you. For some, it'll be purpose, right? How many people, Richard, the data from Gallup has been very clear. 30% of people are engaged in the U.S. That number is 20% globally, right? So for basically for 70, 80%, they're spending 8 to 10 hours in a day at work with no meaning in that task. How can, and, then for, and in addition, stressful interactions. How can you not, right, come away more stressed, anxious, 
And so a big part for those people is around with leaders, how do we collect meaning to what they're doing every day? Got it. And how can we as an organization define meaning beyond just making money? That's a key thing. And I think your first part is be aware of where you are. And the second is where do you want to go and what drives you there? That's exactly right. And where, which lever will help you get the most, you know? And that's why the idea behind these practices, Richard, was, look, there are 26 of them, one every two weeks. If it works for you, amazing, keep doing it. Let it grow from there. And if it doesn't, go try the next one. Got it. And so rather than use AI or some other way to ask you or kind of decide for you what will work, I said, you know what? Why don't we just make it simple? I am more about practicing and doing individually and as teams. So let's just go do that. Let's just try it. Let's make small investments to discover our way to our own flourishing. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. So now I'm going to turn to you. Yeah. What was the reaction among your colleagues (laughs) and McKinsey when you whipped up this new second career? Yeah. Did they say the man has lost the plot? Yeah. Great question. So yeah, there was a lot of disbelief. But then there was also a lot of excitement and support. Why the disbelief? Richard, like the disbelief was because, you know, over the last five years um, of my time at McKinsey, you know, I'd been a partner. I made partner six years after being at the firm. So like, you know, for like 15, you know, I had a long career as a partner. And as a partner, you have tons of flexibility. And I had created the perfect life that was the envy of so many others. I was doing work I loved. I was actually working three and a half days a week. So I was on a part-time program. So I wasn't living the life of many consultants, 60 to 90 hours, four days on the road. I was working on a topic I loved. I was making a lot of positive difference. I was and have always been a very happy guy, right? And, and so people are like, I don't get it. You're making, who will pay you as much as you make? You know, why would you change? So there was a lot of fear around that too. Oh, the economy is about to kind of go under. Is this really thing the right time for it? And I said to many of them, this is not courage that's making me go do this. This is my calling. We can never have enough or we can have always enough. So like I was looking at where I was. I came to the US with nothing. I had about $2,000 in my bank account. And here I am at 46, 47, you know, in a relatively comfortable place. So like, you know, I think I'm at a place where, yeah, I can keep adding more, more zeros or I can actually truly shift towards making a huge difference into the world. And that's what I decided to do. And once people found out what I was leaving for, Richard, they were like, it is you. Got it. Because this is who you are. This is your essence. Fantastic. Tell me a little bit about, without giving any names, what does a client engagement look like? Like what are client engagements in this place? Yeah. So, you know, just like the hardwired for happiness is, and the sunflower model is for individuals, The work we are doing around flourishing, um, Rishad, is all around fundamentally integrating flourishing into the way we work. It's designed, these programs are designed to change the way we work versus what we talked about, which is a plus one, something at the painting at the end of the line. So what does that look like? We created a model um, called Pearl. Now there's a story behind Pearl, and I'll tell you what Pearl stands for. But first, the, the metaphor, right? If you think about pearls, pearls are formed from irritants that get into oysters. And that irritant 
is at the core. You know, the oyster kind of secretes to coat it and it becomes a very valuable thing. Well, irritants abound in organizations. And the idea is around how do we as organizations, just like an oyster converts the irritant into a pearl, as organizations, we create pearls of flourishing. So PEARL stands for P is purpose. How do we define our collective why as an organization? Why do we exist beyond making money and how we connect it to the individual why? E is all about energizing workplaces. How do we fundamentally interact with each other in ways that create positive spirals of energy rather than downward spirals through resentment, resignation, and conflicts that abound? So it's the skills that we as people leaders need to build to actually do that. A, again, is awareness. Are we operating from a place of creative versus reactive, seeing the world aligned with our purpose and activating from passion, or constantly firefighting from a place of fear? R is all about relationships. Are we creating workplaces and teams where people can truly belong? They feel psychologically safe and trusted, and so collectively, they can create much better outcomes. And L is all about life force, well-being, are we individually supporting and in creating work, you know, how we work, where we work that allow people to be at their best physically, mentally, spiritually? So we use this model. We do a diagnostic upfront to quickly assess where the organization is around these five elements. And then we help design programs that build skills using adult learning principles over a year where we teach the leaders the skill. We then turn around and have the teachers lead, teach it to their teams and then activate a process to change the way they work, integrate it into their work. So it's very different, Rishad, as you can imagine, from classic capability building programs. You go for five days and you kind of get downloaded a bunch of stuff and then you go away, right? This is about at scale, entire organizations going through this journey or teams and using what they're learning to change how they work. You know, one of the things that's most interesting, these things are almost mirror images of each other. Mm -hmm. You know, what you do for yourself, what you do for the organization, you know, they work, they, they work very much. So if you are someone who is doing it for yourself and suddenly finds yourself in an organization, it doesn't feel schizophrenic. It feels just like the same thing. Yeah. We are collectively living in this nightmare, Rishad. And so the answer is to collectively support each other with compassion, progress over perfection, and over, you know, we set the intention and support each other to evolve into our higher consciousness. We can't judge, we can't, you know, say, hey, you're reactive, you're, like, it's not about that. We're all in this together. And collectively, we can emerge stronger as companies and teams and individuals. So that's exactly right. They are mirror images. And you can't do one without the other. Individual and cultural interventions have to go together. Absolutely. Uh, those are a terrific way of concluding. We've had the privilege of listening to Ashish Kotari, who today is the founder and CEO of Happiness Squad, who for many years was at McKinsey. He has told us about the importance of happiness, how a combination of stresses of AI and a lot of other things uh, makes us often fearful, contracting, not open. But in the future, we need to be more open for ourselves to grow. We need to be more aware. We need to understand what gives us meaning and purpose. And he has shared 
a lot of interesting thoughts on how we can all do this. Thank you, Ashish. Thank you, Rishad. Thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure to connect with you uh, and wishing you and your listeners the best on this journey to rewire. What Next? A publicist group podcast produced by Prodigious UK.